Thank you, Susan. Thank you. Uh, if you have been tracking with us, then you know that we're in a series in which we're looking at the book of Esther. And on the surface, her story is not unlike the hopes and dreams of many in our culture. Uh, through a series of events, this young Jewish girl, this cultural outsider, is elevated to the position of queen of the Persian Empire. And her, the reason for her being there is to save uh, her people from execution. Uh, but there's more. If you remember uh, from last week, her adopted uncle, uh, the righteous Mordecai, uh, was at the right place at the right time. And he overheard uh, a conversation between two of the king's guards in which they were talking about assassinating the king. And so because of his being at the right place at the right time, and Esther being elevated to this particular position, he passed on that information, and he saved the day. He saved uh, the king. And so that's where we're at in this particular story. And if we just take this story at surface value, in many ways it sounds like a fairy tale. But we've been working really hard, or I've been working really hard to keep it honest, to keep it real, because the story that we're looking at is actually a very dark and dangerous story, and it describes a very dark and dangerous world. Uh, in this particular world, young men are mutilated so that they can be appropriate, docile servants. In this world, young women are stolen from families and villages so that they can serve at the pleasure of the king and the nobles. Uh, in this world, curtains and cups are described in greater detail than the needs of human beings. This is the world of this particular story. And so if you hear this story, and this is true of any biblical text, and you get disturbed, that's appropriate. That's the author's intention. If you hear this story and you get uncomfortable, it's right to be uncomfortable. You're supposed to. That's the point. If you're asking who's in charge, where is God? Then that's the right question to ask too. But let me just heed you or give you a little bit of warning. If you're looking for God in this particular passage or in this particular story, you're looking for his name, you're wondering where he is, you won't find him mentioned anywhere. But what we know and what we've been looking at is that he's in the details. And here's one particular detail. One of the reasons I think that people place so much stock in the depiction of the afterlife, that the, I should say the depiction that the Bible describes in the afterlife, is because God's word is so brutally honest about the world that we actually live in. And because it's so brutally honest about the world we live in and our own role and responsibility in that brutality, it's so perceptive, it's so nuanced, that we can't help believe that what it says about heaven and the kingdom of God is true too. And so with that in mind, let's jump into this, this passage. I'm going to read just 15 verses this time. Uh, this is Esther 3, verses 1 through 15. After these events, 
King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about, about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the, month, the, uh, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a, a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to, to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the, 13th of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. And that is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? <sighs> Heavenly Father, in many ways when we come to this text, we, we come before you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us through this, this passage. Uh, would you bless us by your presence? Would you remind us of your goodness? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, this summer I was in a, a conversation with a group of neighbors, and we were talking about what, it, what it's like to live in New York City. And we all had a very similar experience, though we come from all different walks of life. Uh, and one person kind of spoke for everybody at one particular point, and he said this. He says, New York City is constantly trying to tell you that it doesn't need you. 
And I think that feeling is something that all of us in that room felt to be true. Uh, it's a tough city to live in. Uh, it doesn't always feel like it's the place where you belong. And sometimes, maybe repeatedly, it reminds you of that. And yet I don't think that that experience is unique to living life here in the city. Uh, that is a human experience. Uh, that wherever we live, there's a profound sense that we're not quite home, that we don't fully belong, that we, in a sense, live estranged lives. And maybe you've gone through seasons in your own life where you've not felt at home in your body, maybe, or in your family, or in your place of work, or in your friend group, or online, or at school, uh, in your place of worship. Uh, maybe the place where you grew up felt like you didn't belong there and therefore you moved to New York City hoping that this would be the place where everything would come together. <laughs> and yet here we are, uh, still struggling with this idea that we're not quite at home. Uh, so this feeling is a universal feeling, I think. And it's a feeling and an experience that the New Testament talks a lot about. Uh, the author of the book of Hebrews says that every city is a fading city, but that there is a permanent city that's coming that you were actually made for. Uh, that city is coming, and therefore it makes absolute sense, right, that we don't feel at home, that we feel like sojourners, because we were made for another place. We were made for another city that will never perish, never spoil, never fade, a permanent one. And so the book of Esther teaches us that on the most profound level, the human experience is what is often called an exilic experience. It's the, an experience of those just like the Israelites who, um, who were exiles. We live east of Eden. We live outside of the kind of environment that we were actually made for, and we cannot get back. We're exiles. And so we're, we function like strangers in a strange land. We feel like strangers in a strange land. And therefore, it's wise for us to have this mindset about life, uh, that we're sojourners, we're passing through, that we're, we're exiles, and therefore to anticipate that there's going to, you're going to live a life of tremendous confusion. It's going to be a life filled with tension. Uh, but... What the Bible talks about is that Christians, that you have an opportunity to be an unmistakable expression of the presence of God wherever you are. You can be a citizen of that city here and now in a mysterious way. And so as we, um, as we live through this world, um, we should always know we'll always be confused. <laughs> But as, if we take on this idea, this, this reality that we're in exile, we'll be wise, we'll be tough. But you'll also at the same time be very tender to the, to the people that are around you. And so let's think about this, this idea of being exiled, being in exile, recognizing that we live between two worlds and what that experience is like. Okay? And let's think about it in three ways as we look at this particular passage. That we live in a world of great confusion. That, we, that it's right to anticipate great tension, 
but we have an opportunity to provide great comfort for those that are around us. So first, we live in a world of great confusion. This passage, right, is back to front, front to back, a passage of confusion. And I, you see that on a, a, a macro level and a micro level. At the very end of the passage, you see that all of the kingdom is perplexed. All of the kingdom is bewildered, right? There's this decree that's gone out by these two very irresponsible, self-involved leaders in, in this kingdom. And therefore, they have told the kingdom there's going to be genocide that's taking place in 11 months. Get ready. And so all the world, all that kingdom is just utterly confused, perplexed, bewildered, right? We'll talk about that in the second point. But in the, in the, in the beginning of the passage, on a micro level, a more personal level, we see there's a great deal of confusion too. And that comes because of the promotion of Haman. And Haman is sort of right out of central casting for the bad guy. You know, you almost anticipate that he has a little mustache, that he, he does this as he speaks, right? He's right out of central casting. We're meant to see this figure and recognize almost immediately he's not to be trusted. He is kind of a worm tongue figure, you know, if you know that story, that he whispers into the ears of the king and says falsehoods and half-truths to serve his own needs. So he's a, he's a, a horrible, he's Haman the horrible, you might say. And yet, the confusion is brought not just because he was elevated to this position of power, but he was elevated to this position of power over and against Mordecai, the righteous. Now, it's not explicit, but their, their, their uh, experiences come one after the other. And so it's hard to not read it and go, what happened here? Why was this person chosen over that person? And of course, Mordecai is right out of central casting for a righteous, wise man. He's the one who goes to the king and, and says, takes great risk to go to the king and says that there's a plot to kill you. And he saves the king's life. And yet the king cannot see the fact that he's surrounded by a group of advisors who cannot protect him, who've led him into a, a war uh, prior to this in which they failed to, to win. So politically, he's vulnerable. Financially, they're probably vulnerable. His kingdom is vulnerable. And yet he, can't, he fails to see that God has brought Mordecai into his court. And so there's great confusion there. So what's going on here? It's right for us to ask, where is God? Who's in control? And as we've been talking about the providence of God in this book, and it's one of the major themes, and it's this idea that God is superintending, he's governing all of our lives, even though we don't see it, maybe we don't recognize it. In fact, I would go to say we often rarely see it, and it's actually wise for us not to deduce in every situation that we're in that this is the providence of God right here working, right? Uh, when it comes to our own situations, the providence of God are often not noticeable or interpretive in the moment. And therefore, in our own lives, it's unwise, perhaps prideful, immature, for us to try and speak with authority about what God is doing in immediate situations. Uh, but we do know this. Haman was an ungodly man, but God had a purpose in allowing him to be promoted, and Mordecai was a righteous man. 
And God had a purpose in his not even being considered. We live in a professional culture, and I recognize that we're talking about genocide and work, and these seem like such different things, and yet God is, can be at work in both the biggest situations of humanity and the smallest. But we live, live and work in a professional culture, and to be overlooked, to not be seen, can be one of the most discouraging and confusing things to experience in life. And if you're a New Yorker, there are a few things that make you feel less at home than to be professionally overlooked or discarded. Now, how confusing would that be for somebody like Mordecai? Because he wasn't somebody who's saying, you don't see me the way that I see myself. Mordecai could be discouraged, could be confused because people don't see him for what he actually is, which is an asset which is a source of strength and wisdom. Mordecai is a person who took calculated risks. He showed wisdom in doing so. He was discreet. Uh, if he were in finance, you know, he could point to the numbers that he produced. Uh, he could show his resume. Uh, but being overlooked here is something that he experienced. And yet when you read it, it's like it's not even his problem. In fact, I think you could it's safe to say he wasn't looking for a role at all. So what was he doing? Well, the person who knows they live in exile counts on the reality that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so the exilic mindset knows that I need to work hard, I need to do, uh, do right, but success is never guaranteed. But my willingness to serve is. My willingness to step, step in and do the right thing, even if it may cost you, is what I'm called to do. I can promise that. I can bank on that in some sense. Success is, of course, always elusive. It requires many factors which are largely out of our control. But dedicating yourself to serving is not out of your control. And I would imagine that Mordecai was not mortified because he wasn't looking for worldly success at all. He was simply trying to protect the king. He was looking to serve. And he wasn't discouraged because he lived as a man in exile, and therefore his expectations were set at the reality that he wasn't home. Things would not always be as he had hoped. So first, we should have an expectation that the world is a world of great confusion on a macro level and a micro level. Second, we have a right to anticipate tension. And you see that in these first you know, few verses and in the exchange really between these two central figures, between Haman and Mordecai. There's tension there. It's, they've never even met. And yet, they stand opposed to each other. Uh, there's great tension in living in exile. And so in the story, you see that people are moving in and out of spaces where it would be very intense to be in. Esther's brought before, uh, into the court, and she's meant to please the king. And we all know what that means. And that would be a space of enormous tension. 
traumatizing tension. And um, the reader is meant to experience that and feel that. And as we said earlier, we're meant to be uncomfortable about that. We're meant to feel that particular tension. That's the point. And so beginning in verse 1 and in other verses, we read that despite Haman's promotion, despite all the royals, officials bowing down to Haman, Mordecai does not go along with the crowd. He does not kneel. He doesn't bow down. And you see that, uh, and so once Haman hears about it, in retaliation, what does he do? He devises a plan not just to put Haman in his place, but to have all of the Jewish culture, the Jewish community, suffer for Haman's, for Haman's uh, dishonoring of him. And so he devises a plan. And if you read through verses 8 through 9, you see that this is a, the way that he talks to King Xerxes is full of half-truths and false statements. He says there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces. And the way that he describes it, it's, it's, it's as though there is a handful of people as opposed to a whole subculture of Jewish families and a network of business and industry that brings life and, and you know, prosperity to this community. So there's just a certain people, he says. But of course, Xerxes is so out of touch, he has no idea. And he says their customs are different, that's true, from, from those of other people. But, and they disobey the king's laws, that's not true. And so he tells them this yarn, this tale, to serve his own, no, his own means. He's inherently misleading. And so all of Susa, not just the community, because they live amongst their Jewish neighbors. They know the beauty of their neighbor or their shopkeeper or the person around the corner. All of Susa, it says, is perplexed or bewildered. And so there's great tension there in the town, sh shouldn't say town, the empire, but there's two, uh, tension between these two figures. But why? If we begin to pick at this passage, we begin to see that this tension is not just between these two guys, these two sort of alpha males, but it's a historical tension that goes way back. So in Exodus 17, uh, the people of God have come out of Israel. They're in the wilderness. They're a small, weak, frail, wandering community in exile. And they are preyed upon by the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were forced to be reckoned with. They were an established nation. They were a brutal nation. And they saw the Amalekites, and they plotted to destroy uh, Israel. But when they attacked Israel, they... Somehow they didn't overtake them. But in God's, in a, in a way to bring God's righteousness and to further the faith of the, Israel, uh, the people of Israel, he said, go and attack them. I will bring my judgment upon them so the world will know you are my people. And so this small, frail community of exilic people, they attack the Amalekites and by the power of God, they actually win. And that's there in verse, uh, excuse me, in, in Exodus 17. And then the Lord tells Moses to write this down. Remember this. I am your God. You are my people. You're in exile. But have confidence. You're going to lead confusing lies, but my presence in your life will bring clarity 
to who you are and who and that I am for you yes you'll feel you'll be filled with tension but do not dismay I walk next to you I walk with you and so they write this down uh, they write about the, the war of the Amalekites and then the story continues and then in 1 Samuel 15, it picks up again. And in 1 Samuel 15, Saul uh, now has been made king and he's given a task, a command by God to do what? To now destroy the Amalekites, to bring their judgment on them, right? He's sort of living out the promise that unrighteousness will not stand in his creation. And so what Saul does is he... He goes and they attack the Amalekites, um, but he doesn't actually obey all of the commands of God. So God says, go and destroy them and don't take any of their gold, don't take any of their cattle, destroy them completely. This is an act of judgment on them. Don't be pirates. Don't plunder them. Don't become what you actually hate. And so Saul goes down and they destroy them, but what does he do? He does he obeys God partially. They defeat them, but then they begin to pick and choose the best of that community for their own, to line their own pockets. And God, of course, is displeased. Samuel comes to him and says, what did you do? He says, I didn't do anything. Saul says, I didn't do anything. He says, yes, you did. So he confesses, he repents, and he says, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. And here's the thing. Whether you're at home or in exile, God's and here's, sorry, excursus. Whether you're at home or you're in an exile, God's commands and de decrees, they're not arbitrary for us. They're always purposeful. And if and when uh, we choose to, uh, they're always pur purposeful. Men's opinions don't matter as much as God's, even though men can be quite persuasive. When we don't obey God, the story teaches us there will be consequences. Uh, you can only kick the can down the road, so to speak, so long. And so as a result of um, Saul fearing the people and obeying their voice, what happens? This ancient tension continues. It remains. And it comes down through the centuries to these two men, to Haman and Mordecai, because Haman is an Agagite, and the king of the Amalekites is Agag, and Mordecai is the son of Kish, and Kish was the father of Saul. And so there's this lineage of tension in the world that is in their bones, it's in their history. And by coincidence, here they are, a kind of standoff. God is at work in this, but why is the hidden hand of God at work? The hidden hand, at, uh, the hidden hand of God is at work in the world because there's another hand at work in the world as well. And that other hand is described in 1 John as the power of the evil one. And so in the same sense that we're confused, how does Haman come to, the, come to the forefront? 
because there's another hand at work in the world. Why does Mordecai and Esther come to the forefront? Because God is working against this evil one. And so in the same way that God has brought Esther into a position of power, we now know why. Because the evil one has brought Haman into a position of power. And Xerxes, of course, has abdicated his power to Haman, hasn't he? He's given him his ring. He's given over uh, his agency. And Haman now wears this signet ring, and he can do, what, do whatever evil uh, he, would, he would choose to do. And so he sets out to destroy the Jews. He sets out to, to live out the, the, the dream of the Amalekites, you might say. He sets out to destroy God's plan to bring a true king to redeem and to restore his creation. And of course, this tension in the world is not new, right? As I've, I've just said, but this is an ongoing battle throughout the scriptures. On three occasions, the Jews faced genocide with Pharaoh right here and at the birth of Jesus. You know, at the birth of Jesus, there's a decree that goes out into the land that they were to kill any children under two. And so the hidden hand of God is always batting away, slapping down, wrestling with the power of the evil one. And this is no different. This is exactly what's going on. So the tension in the world is not merely between men, but there's a spiritual battle between opposing forces, hidden and not so hidden. And while the evil one has sought to thwart God's people and his plans in Egypt by driving him into the sea or through the Amalekites or when Herod has, these children, uh, has all the children under two killed, we see time and time again God entering into the fray, protecting his people, upholding his promise that through the Jews he would bring peace. So who's in charge? Xerxes? No. Haman? No. The devil? No. With Esther and Mordecai in the mix, we see that God is actually in charge. And therefore, as those of, who live in confusion and tension, those who live in exile in the world, what do we know? That we're called to be citizens that serve. That we know that we're going to experience great tension. But because the hidden hand of God is also at work in this world, we are not to bow down to men or to evil leaders, or to be swayed by persuasive, worm-tongue-like figures in our lives. So, uh, we should expect great confusion, great tension, but we can also be a source of great comfort. You know, at the end you see the only people that are comforted are these two buffoons. And I don't mean to be disrespectful, but they're sort of silly in how harmful they actually are. And they sit and drink while all the, the people around them are upset. They're sitting and relaxing, but the rest of Susa is, is filled with, with uh, perplexity. And so while we, we've seen it's not always our job to alleviate the tension in our times through Mordecai, it is our job as servant citizens to comfort those who who need comfort. And you know, the New Testament is so good at describing an exilic life. 
how hard it is to be a follower of Jesus uh, when he's alive, how hard it is to be a follower of Jesus uh, post-resurrection. But you see in their lives how utterly different they become in light of seeing Jesus risen from the dead. That they were cowards and, and self-serving. They weren't that different in some sense than Xerxes, who was so easily swayed by other people, who, um, who was often self-serving. They were willing to abdicate authority to let other people do things. Or they were saying, hey, I want to sit at your right hand. And yet, after the resurrection, they were totally different. They were strong, they were brave, they were courageous. And they comforted those who were afflicted. You know, in 1 Peter, that first chapter is just so beautiful. And how Peter says, he says to them, grace and, pe grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, how can he say that to those who are in exile, those who are suffering and actually are being persecuted? How can he say that? I mean, if there was anybody who was similar to Xerxes in character, you might say it was Peter, right? So bold on the one hand, so, so willing to flee on the other. Uh, why? Why was he like that? Because the tension got to him. Because he became confused when the pressure came. Right? So was Peter passed over because of his character? No. By the work, power of the Holy Spirit, he was restored. By the power of the Spirit, he did not experience judgment. Or excuse me, by the, by the, the work of Christ, he did not experience judgment. In fact, he became an apostle. He lived in the tension of the world. But because of Christ, he knew that he was a citizen of another. Because of the resurrection, he knew he had a permanent home where he belonged. And so he says this in, in that first chapter, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is exilic language here. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's shielded by God's power. That's the hidden hand of God there. In all of this, you greatly rejoice, though for now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So the challenge of living as an exile is to, to try to make, is to not to make heaven here on earth with ourselves as king. The challenge is to wean ourselves from the trappings of this world, to not be so concerned with the details of our curtains or the design of the cups on our tables, but to care about the people around us who are in tension, who are confused, to wean ourselves from the trappings of this world, but without divorcing ourselves from this world. 
to commit to the world and the people in it with all of its needs without falling into the, to the belief that your love is all the world needs. There's a greater love. We've been exiled for a just cause, but we've been given a great home by a great king, a true king. You know, recently I read a book uh, called Who You Are, Who You Are. Um, is that the, I'm sorry, where's Jen? Who am I? What's Judy's book? Who You Are, thank you. Oh, thank you. And in the book, she talks about how Christians struggle to grow. And the reason is, is because we are filled with tension. We are filled with confusion. We are filled with uh, ways that we've been formed by our lives. And so the things that we actually believe, they never really, it's hard for us to internalize them. And therefore, we tend to stay at a certain level in our Christian faith without maturing into a, a new season, a becoming more and more into the image of God. And she says that what, what Christian communities need is we need corrective relational experiences to do that. And one of the things that I appreciate, appreciate about our church is we have an opportunity as a church to create a, a space in which people can come and have their understanding of God be challenged as we remain faithful to the gospel be challenged in new ways and to begin to rethink and reform and to be uh, reshaped in their understanding of, of the gospel. And she says this, she says, and she used, and I appreciate this because she uses a lot of language that's sort of familiar in their culture now, but I love the way she explains some of this particular language. She says this, in my dissertation I found that new relational experiences were necessary to review, to revise how people view God. In that study, participants described a few key features of corrective relational experiences. First, it's important to establish a safe space for people to show their deepest vulnerabilities. This is where what we hope to do with neighbor space. This is what we hope to do with our Sunday experience. This is what we hope to do with our neighborhood groups, right? This is essential in creating a transforming experience. The safe space is chiefly characterized by non-judgmental interactions in which any admission of wrongdoing, any perceived weakness, and any character flaws are met with empathy and not judgment. Non-judgmental interactions. Another way to say that is to say, I recognize that you're in exile too. I recognize that you live in a, in a life, a world of tension and confusion, just like I do. You're amongst a similar people. And therefore, to... Uh, to respond to people with empathy and not judgment. Why? Because judgment's already come down on Jesus. I've not had to bear that judgment. Jesus did. Participants noted that they felt validated, seen, understood, honored, not because their emotional and behavioral responses were perceived as good, but because their reactions made sense given their insertion exilic situation and what they experienced. We are a church in exile. We're not home. We're going to learn and grow and screw up together. We're going to have conflict with each other and people are going to come. They're not going to look like you. They're not going to talk like you. They're not going to, they're not going to believe the things that you believe. And our response to them can be one of a 
counter relational experience of empathy, of validation, of understanding as we walk and honor, walk to honor this king of this city that we actually belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for this text. I pray that you'd help us to learn it through and through. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.